The Constellation, Episode 14, ICA. in a hospital waiting room. He had to get here really early for his Covid booster jab. He could have waited a few more months, but he needs it before his trip to LA next month. Everyone is still wary of mutations. There have been a few. Some tamed the virus into something resembling a bad cold. Others went the other way, turning people inside out and finishing them off in days. But because it's not very efficient to kill your host, the bad mutations usually fizzle out quickly. There'd been an outbreak in Antwerp a couple of weeks ago. God, it's taking hours. Why hadn't I brought a book, he thinks. It's warm, too warm in the room, and he starts daydreaming. The smell of disinfectant reminding him of the weeks he'd spent in London visiting his dad. It was just before the Brexit referendum. On his first visit, he got completely lost in the corridors of the hospital, full of large posters with inspirational messages. Our vision, our values, our goals, our actions. We provide person-centred, world-class quality healthcare services. I'm delivering a caring service by leading and supporting a compassionate and skilled workforce, said an NHS executive by way of a speech bubble. Carl was passed on from one group of nurses to another. At last he found the room and started looking around for Dad. There were a few patients with visitors. He wasn't there. There was just some old guy asleep in the corner. Jesus, that is him. And he looks awful, thought Carl. Tubes coming out of his nose and stuff. He found a chair in the corridor, set it down beside the bed, and took his dad's hand. <coughs> said Dad. Dad, are you awake? It's Carl. <laughs> That's it, thought Carl. The end of communication forever. Can he hear me? 
Does he understand? Hello, Carl. Where the hell have you been? I just came from Brussels. You've had a... you've had a fall. Bloody, bloody stroke, more like. I feel bloody awful. In what way? In every way. Like... like some buggers hit me round the head with a cricket bat. Carl's dad never used to swear. Could it be the stroke, he thinks? Carl settled down as best he could in the old Brixton house. He'd even found a box of old records in the attic, which he started to blog about just to keep himself busy. But the days blurred into weeks. Everything was timed around visiting hours, interspersed with Skype calls to LA in the middle of the night. Each hospital visit seemed more and more absurd. Hey, Dad, it's me, Carl. That you, boy? I haven't seen you since your mother's funeral. Hey, but I was here just... Wearing a suit. I haven't seen you wearing a suit since your... But I'm not wearing a suit. I can see that. Why ever not? Carl didn't really have an answer to that one, so he tried to change the subject. You know it's the referendum the day after tomorrow. I got you a postal vote. Referendum? About Britain leaving the EU. Let's make Britain great again. Eh? And all that tosh. Exactly. I don't think... I don't think I'll bother. No? Don't you want to vote? No, no. I don't think I'll bother to leave. Everyone always wanted me to leave. It's too late now. I'm too old. I really would prefer not to. Like Bartleby, says Carl. Then he regrets it. Don't break the flow. Eh? Who? Balaby? Whatever happened to that Balaby? Comrade? Comrade Bala? Bala, yeah. Whatever happened to him? He was arrested just a while back. Kept a bunch of women locked up for years in his house. Can you remember him? Didn't you notice anything? It was just... Just down the road from us. They were always handing out leaflets. I remember you came home with one once, when you were a kid. Yeah, I remember too. Said we were about to be liberated by the Viet Cong or the Chinese or someone. You were scared, showed it to me. You just laughed. Made me feel better though. Thought you'd become one of them too. One of what, Dad? The Cong, the, the commies. You hang out with those Marxians, Marxists. Yeah, that was the times, though. When? When? When was the times? Eighties. Early eighties. I remember it like it was yesterday. Do you know that? Better than yesterday. When Carl left the hospital, he breathed in deeply. It wasn't fresh. The nanoparticle-rich brew that is London air could never be called fresh. But at least it wasn't hospital smell. That smell, those complex chains of organic compounds latch onto you, under your fingernail, clinging to a nostril hair or a shirt cuff like a virus, only to let themselves loose at some unexpected moment, in order to spoil, for instance, 
breaking open a fresh roll from the bakers on the high street. Hospital smell sneaked into Carl's nose when he woke up at night, still not knowing where he was. It's the smell of death and sex, of shit and piss, bleach and coal tar soap. Monsieur Vaz? Carl Vaz? Carl wakes up, back in hospital, but this time in Brussels. The nurse holds the door open. Time for his jab. Okay, thanks. Let's talk again soon. Bye. Fatima puts down the phone. She's been talking with a colleague in Edinburgh. They were working on the same project, but now the independence procedures have started and no one's really sure what this means for the police force. They're trying to figure out how to either keep in touch or split the whole project into two parts. It's like Brexit all over again, thinks Fatima. There'll be interminable negotiations until they clinch a deal at the last second that's kind of crap for everyone. And Wales and Northern Ireland will be next. Although she has umpteen things to do, she's still wading through the reports about Carl Vaz from the 1980s. Not that she's learning anything useful, but it's entertaining and she started to empathise with the guy. Reading between the lines, he was a reluctant informant. April 15th, 1985. Possible London action from agitprop organisation, The Group. Mike and Carl had met in Henry's, a yuppie cafe in the centre of town. Not Carl's scene at all, but that was the point. Mike's eyes kept following the waitresses, who wore very short skirts. Carl had a bit of a hangover, and he felt under pressure. He just wanted to hang out with his mates, experiment with art, read, think about philosophy, dance, have sex. And here was this guy who wanted things from him, who asked questions to which he had no answers. Fuck, why had he ever got involved with them? Look, Mike was saying, I know that you lot are bloody well up to something. You said you see them every day almost, and that they're reading all these radical books. You give me hints about explosives, and then you pretend you never told me. I just need some concrete info. Either it's all fine and dandy and innocent, in which case you're all in the clear, or they're really planning to do something, well, illegal, dangerous. And then we can nip it in the bud so to speak. Yeah, well, I don't know, said Carl. I told you that there, we are going to perform at the ICA. Where's that then? London, on the Mall. The Mall? Okay. And yeah, they're planning things, but really, it's, you know, it's art. It's not really activism or anything. You mean it's just for show? It's like theatre. Well, they're serious, but it's, it's intellectual. 
They're not going to be setting off bombs or anything. How about that idea to stockpile Molotov cocktails? You mentioned that last time. Yeah, but that's an installation, an art piece. It's just to look at. It's not to be used. Well, you're not really convincing me, Carl. Look, we want to know everything. When, where, how, how are you going to travel, what's in the van, everything. Write it down for me, okay? Okay, will do. Carl thought a bit. Maybe there was something that he could give Mike. You know that there's this really weird church up in Crooks? Ah, you mean the nine o'clock service? You know them, then? We've got someone up there, of course. It's just that that guy, Chris, he's dodgy. He's probably abusing women, what I heard. Yeah, I heard that too. Can't do anything, though, without some proof. If you hear something, let me know, eh? Yeah, sure, said Carl. Great, so that's us done, then. I'll get these. Oh, and while I'm at it, here. He handed over an envelope. We still owe you some cash for those meetings. Oh, yeah, cool. Thanks. Carl had started to go to students' union meetings, ostensibly to test the influence of the socialist workers and revolutionary communist parties on the organisation. He'd never been so bored in his life. Mike was trying to persuade him to stand for election to the union. Fuck that. Outside, he checked the envelope. 30 quid. That made it feel more worthwhile. And he wasn't far from Rare and Racy, the second-hand record shop that he went to almost every weekend. Later, he came home with Ornette Coleman, a compilation from Madagascar, the art ensemble of Chicago. Ford Transit was packed full. Toby was driving. Carol and Gus sat in the front. Mary and Carl behind them, and then Dave in the back. The rest of the van was filled with gear. Projectors, sound equipment, megaphones, musical instruments ranging from thigh-bone trumpets to steel gongs. The rest of the musicians, mates of Gus, were going down on the train. Mary was nervous. She and Carol had just come back from Greenham Common, had developed their films and put together the slideshows in a couple of days. She didn't really know how it was all going to fit together in the performance. They'd all worked together before, of course, had performed in clubs and art spaces in Sheffield, Nottingham, Brighton, even in Peak Cavern. But for this one, the ICA, the big one, they hadn't even had a proper rehearsal. Toby was worryingly confident, cracking jokes. Gus seemed to be totally focused on the sound setup. He was poring over a diagram in his notebook. Carl was acting really strangely. He had been for weeks, thought Mary, so nervous about everything. He kept turning around to look out the back, as if he thought they were being followed. And Dave, Dave was lying down on his seat, staring at the ceiling and humming to himself. Dave had a suitcase with him. 
He'd opened it earlier to show Mary, like a kid's chemistry set, full of vials and test tubes with different coloured liquids. Olfactory art, he'd said, and had taken out a roll of paper with a complicated schedule drawn with coloured felt tips. This, he said, is the smell score. Every minute of the performance will have a different scent, a different atmosphere. The performance, Carol had relayed to her the previous evening, was to be like an archetypal shamanic ritual. Shaman goes into a trance, goes off on a journey to the underworld or wherever, and comes back with gifts or messages for the tribe. But who is the shaman? asked Mary, thinking along traditional theatre lines. We are, said Carol, but also the audiences. Everyone goes on the journey. It's about trying to create this moment of total catharsis and togetherness. They were welcomed by the curator, who handed them over to the technicians. They laughed a bit at all the stuff they brought with them. Didn't you bring a pneumatic drill? asked one. But they'd prepared well. They'd set up the lights and the smoke machines according to Carl's plan. The PA following Gus's instructions. Gus started methodically connecting everything to the huge mixer. He seemed to know what he was doing. The others started to set up all the screens and projectors. Where's Dave? asked Mary. Dave? Under here? came a voice from under the seating. Mary peered in to see Dave setting up his chemicals with a small hot plate and two large fans. Best place under here, said Dave. They won't know where it's coming from. In the rush, someone had forgotten to pack the dissolve unit for Mary and Carol's slide projectors. The technicians said they had one at the ICA, but it was being used in a Susan Hiller installation. They would have to work them by hand. The only thing was that the projectors were now high up in the grid. No worries, said Carol. Let's just do it up there. It'll be a real 3D thing. They took a megaphone and some of the metal percussion instruments up there with them. Toby and Carl went out into the foyer to set up the installation. There was a large glass cabinet that belonged to the dangerous bookshop. Dangerous, because you couldn't go in without spending a fortune. Toby had persuaded them to empty the cabinet just for the evening. They unpacked the bottles, half filled them with water, put some cotton wool into the neck of some, a rag into others. Carl found a lighter in his coat pocket and laid it next to the bottles. Then they transferred the red lettering onto the glass. In case of emergency, it said, break glass. As a finishing touch, Toby took out a little bottle of petrol, doused a rag in it and smeared it under the cabinet so that it really smells of petrol, he said. After hours of telephone calls with the management and the curators, they'd settled for this solution. The musicians arrived just in time for Gus to do the sound check. He had a funny feeling in his stomach. It was the biggest sound system he'd ever worked with, and his scheme was complex. Eight-channel tape, 
plus sound from the videos and films, going into four speakers. A drum machine and three extra musicians too, bass, percussion and guitar. He'd got his synthesizer with him as well to process the sounds, and what he called the Stockhausen box. This spun sound around the audience. It had a joystick, but you could also automate it, speed up the spinning, so that the sound turned into what he thought of as a kind of jelly, surrounding, immersing the audience in a non-directional field. He was keeping this effect for the end. The technicians were much more friendly now. Things seemed to be going so smoothly. They turned out to be fans of Einstein's Neubauten and Leibach. Sometimes we get such wankers in here, said one, wanting champagne and fresh fruit and Coke, said another. They'd ordered pizza for everyone, luckily, because no one from the group had even thought about food. The bar started filling up. God, thought Mary, they're so fucking trendy here. What on earth will they think of us? Carl was looking shifty, kept glancing at his watch. Mary thought that he was just nervous about the films. In fact, every time a new person came in, Carl wondered if they were an undercover cop. Mike must have sent a whole bunch of them after his report. He was waiting for the moment when there would be a mass arrest, or maybe the director of the ICA would just get a phone call, or there'd be a bomb scare, a staged fight. There were so many possible scenarios. Jesus, he just wanted it to be over. Under the seating, Dave had settled in for the evening. Lying back on some cushions, he smiled to himself as he felt the LSD start to work. He'd taken it with the pizza. It started with films and videos of demonstrations projected around the room. Carl had included footage from the Brixton riots as well as Orgreave. The sound was realistic, but subdued. And the musicians were joining in quietly. Gus mixed the sound from the back of the audience. He liked it up there, out of the way but with an overview of the whole show. But there was a funny smell wafting up from below. He'd expected to smell camphor at this point, according to the score. But it was more like David opened up a sewer pipe down there. He didn't have time to find out. He started a cassette of crows to give the cue for Mary and Carol's slideshow. He could see that the audience weren't really paying much attention. They were probably waiting for what they'd been led to expect. The reviews of earlier shows had been graphic. The group mixed disturbing images with disturbing sounds in disturbing proportions. Or, if the group come your way, you'll have to decide to go or not to go. Either way, you will curse yourself. More heat, boys, more heat.
Oh well, they're going to get it at the end, he thought. Now the room was filling up more with people. The fairground sequence had started, a film loop taken from a roller coaster with synchronised moving sound. As the film sped up, the lights lowered. This was Carl's cue. He started the smoke machines. Slowly, unnoticed to the audience, the room started to fill up with white smoke. The musicians doubled down and the rest joined in on percussion instruments or megaphones, shouting instructions and questions at the crowd. suddenly didn't have much to do, and looking around at the audience he started to ask himself again who was a real trendy Londoner and who was a police plant. He was still convinced that the performance was going to get stopped. He sat down on the floor next to the seating. He looked underneath and saw Dave sniffing at a test tube. He felt completely exhausted, as if his body had just given up. The police could come and take him away now, please, he thought. Gus started feeding the sound into the stockhousing box, spinning it around the room. Toby started up his flicker films. Everything got louder and louder. Gus mixed the microphones straight into the box and turned them up, causing a kind of warbling feedback. He called this effect the curdler, after the sonic weapon that the army had used in Northern Ireland. Suddenly, all the lights went on. No one could see a thing. Just white light, white heat, white smoke. Gus reached for his bull roarer and walked down into the crowd, whirling it around his head. That's the last thing that he remembered. Mary remembers sitting with her hands over her ears in between the hot lights and seeing Gus, wild-eyed, transfixed, lit by a strobe, whirling something that looked like a sword just over the heads of the audience. Luckily, most of them probably couldn't see how close they were to a concussion. She shouted his name, but her voice had no effect with the thick, 
screaming, soupy sound that was all around them. Then the sound started to lessen. Toby had climbed up to the mixer and was slowly pulling down the faders one by one. lights slowly went down too. At the end, there was a stunned silence, except for Gus, who was still whirling like a dervish. Carl, alerted by the sudden quietness, suddenly came around, saw what was going down, managed to get to Gus, jump up and yank the bull roarer out of his hand. He put his arms around Gus to stop him falling off the chair that he was standing on. Mary and Carol looked down at this image, the two of them, spotlit, embracing, in the middle of the audience in silence. It was a beautiful ending. Later, Carl was sitting, dazed, in the van next to Mary. They were still waiting for Dave, who was still in the building somewhere. I think this is the moment, said Toby, and pulled something out of the glove box. He went outside, and a few seconds later there was a loud bang. This is it, thought Carl, this is the end. Then he looked out of the window to see Toby and Carol, looking up into the sky, their faces bright pink. It was a distress flare, now hanging in the sky over the centre of London. At that moment Dave appeared, running with something in his arms. Go! Go! he shouted. They piled in the van and drove off. Dave was clutching a large and complicated telephone ripped out of the ICA's switchboard. You phone, he said, laughing. Halfway up the M1, Mary had dozed off on Carl's shoulder. He put his arm around her. She awoke and looked up into his face. They started to kiss. After about ten minutes, Carl whispered, I thought you liked girls. Yes, she said. I do. But I like you too. And I think it's time we had a good snog.